Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. We have people that listen to us, Jack. They're trying to understand what's going on in the world. And today, I'd like to talk about that leaked decision from Justice Alito regarding the uh, right to uh, a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. Yeah, in the ensuing battle between the two political parties, each accusing each other of purposefully leaking it. That's the real beauty of it now. And I can tell you, uh, on a personal level, it makes no difference to me that it was leaked or not. I guess I understand that the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, wants to keep its confidentiality and secrecy regarding the drafts of the various opinions. I can certainly understand that, but it doesn't, in my mind, diminish the court any more than they've been diminished anyway over the last several years. You know, that's a really good way of putting it, how the court has been diminished, because I was looking at some statistics now over the weekend. And let me see, I think it was in 2001, the court had an approval rating of 62%. It now has an approval rating of 40%. Yeah, and according to the justices on the Supreme Court, they really don't care what their approval rating is because they have lifetime tenure, which from what I read, and I I guess I hadn't realized it, it just took it as granted that they're there for the lifetime. It's pretty unique around the world that we have our justices uh, that get lifetime appointments. Well, you know, the the lifetime appointment really made sense because it insulated people from their decisions, or excuse me, it insulated people from any retribution concerning their decisions. So that made sense. But I I, I think it was a mistake to make it so long that his lifetime, I think, if somebody were going to ask me, and regrettably nobody is, it ought to be a, an appointment of 15 to 20 years because I think everybody, the longer anybody stays in a position, no matter what it is, the more embedded, the more entrenched, the less open to flexibility. I don't care what position we're talking about. Well, I agree with your analysis that if a person is appointed for his or her lifetime, then they are insulated from a lot of uh, pressures and you know a lot of... Um, a lot of the political pressure you would think would come to bear on the decisions. I read an article that talked about the founding fathers and that they would be shocked to hear that our justices sometimes serve for 20 or 30 years uh, on the Supreme Court. And uh, they said that the average was 15 years until 1970. And now the average is 26 years, mostly because these justices are appointed in their 50s, mid-50s, they're just living longer and they just won't give up that seat. Yeah, that and that goes back to the subject that I like to talk about so much, which is ego. And if you are a lawyer and you read James Mickelhaney, who was a former law professor, God bless him, he died a few years back from Case Western, or you read Richard Rohr, Franciscan priest, they both talk about 
the inherent problems of male ego. Well, excuse me, not male ego, male or female ego. And you have to wonder why somebody who's 80 years old and on the Supreme Court doesn't say, you know, I've been here a long time. It's time to pass the baton. Let's yet let somebody with maybe a, a fresher approach to the law take over. And it comes to my mind that uh, when you get to be that age, and I know, you know, I'm 60, so I've got a few more decades before I'm there. But I also understand how exhausting the practice of law is and in, in the contemplation and writing of uh, briefs and, and decisions. Uh, and you wonder how much the clerks who work for these justices or for some of our justices, their spouses, have an influence of the later, uh, you know, or, or uh, older a justice is. Uh, th I, that's a really good point. I'd like to make a little bit of a U-turn here and get back to what Turley was talking about. And this leak, well, actually, it's not so much the leaked decision, but what he talked about in terms of the injection of politics into the deliberations. That's almost a quote from his op-ed. And, yeah, and just to reset that, you and I uh, were talking about this uh, dispatch op-ed that Jonathan, Jonathan Turley wrote. And uh, for those people that don't know who he is, uh, he is a Georgetown law constitutional expert and professor. George Washington. George, I'm sorry. George Washington. Uh, professor. Yeah. Not Georgetown. And he's, uh, <laughs> and he was talking about uh, the leak more so than the consequences of the decision. But he also said something that caught my eye. He said there is a loss of innocence in all of this, a realization that the court is no longer immune from politics. Now, it, this rings, brings to mind another quote that I get from the movies, which is, he's got to be the smartest dumb person I've ever heard of. <laughs> How could Jonathan Turley be innocent in the, or naive that the court is no longer immune from politics. I mean, that's just a ridiculous statement from a guy that should know better. Well, it really is. And uh, I think, yeah, he made reference in his article to Justice Sotomayor talking about the stents of politics. I think he referred to that in his op-ed. And what she was doing in court was talking about how in the, I don't know what it is, the last 30 years, Gonzo, 15 Supreme Court justices have supported the right to a abortion. Only four have objected. And apparently, I, I haven't found it, but in this case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, which is the, the, the case we're talking about, somewhere along the line, that solicitor general must have said something or must have written something to the effect of, well, we're coming back to the court now because we realize there's a change in the court's composition. I mean, he's stating this is just a good time in terms of who's deciding the case to bring the case. And typically, that's just not the kind of comment I think most lawyers would make. If you think about it, though, I don't blame the solicitor uh, general for that because you know, a lot have been a lot has been said about precedent, that that legal concept. And to me, precedent is the bedrock of our legal system for not only judges, but for us practitioners, right? 
if we think about it on a base level, precedent means that the judges are going to follow the law that's already been decided by either that judge or other judges in the system. So as a practitioner, a client comes into my office and says, uh, my dog uh, bit the neighbor's kid. What are my rights? Well, I have access to a whole library of legal opinions that will tell me what the precedent is on that set of facts. And I can now advise my client that they ought to call their insurance carrier and uh, put them on notice of a claim because they're probably strictly liable and that makes the system work, the precedent. Well, Roe versus Wade has been the precedent for 50 years, and the court looks like they're going to throw it away, and that has to have rippling effects. Well, what's also interesting is when you look back at the interviews of the three justices who were appointed by Trump, Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh, they all gave answers in response to questions about their position on abortion. That suggested that they knew that Roe v. Wade was precedent. In fact, I think it was Kavanaugh who said, well, it's precedent upon precedent, referring to a subsequent abortion case. So if you took these folks at face value, they're saying, or at least they're strongly implying, they're going to uphold Roe. Well, they are, because if they follow precedent, which judges are supposed to do, but understanding precedent from a lawyer standpoint, now we are advocates. We are allowed to advocate the overturning of a case that it right. was decided wrongfully. So I don't necessarily blame the lawyers. It's kind of like blaming linebackers for knocking people over. That's their job. But the judges are supposed to take this precedent and it's supposed to be revered. And the longer it's been precedent and the more times that people have relied upon it as precedent, it seems to me that it almost gets enshrined in our law unless the new justices just think they're smarter than everybody else over the last 50 years. Well, that brings to mind two things. First of all, if they suggested that they, not suggested, if they stated that Roe v. Wade was precedent, stare decisis, the thing for which it stands, and then they vote to overturn it, did they have an epiphany? Or were they just sort of loose with the language? Which brings me to another point. In the interview of Justice Alito years back, he was questioned about the role he had taken regarding abortion as an attorney in the Department of Justice, where he was taking the position that there was no constitutional right. So then they say, wait a minute, you're going to be a justice. How are you going to look at it? And he says, oh, well, as a justice, I would look at it differently. In my view, the only way to figure out how a justice is going to rule is to look at the decisions. Simple as that. What a person, well, the, what a person sorry, says, what a person says is so subjective. It's so influenced by things the, the speaker can't even address, his own subconscious views. He really can't accurately articulate that position, what he's going to do in the future. And this leads to one of the discussions we've had, which is some of these justices want to be on the Supreme Court. And they have written a number of decisions because they've sat on other courts or they've had law review articles or they've just written or published. 
And to me, it's like they're interviewing for Trump to put him on the Supreme Court by how conservative they can be. Now, Trump, despite telling, what, 40,000 lies during his presidency, <laughs> actually told the truth when he said, I'm going to appoint judges that are going to overrule Roe versus Wade. And sure enough, he has done that. He was true to his word in this one instance. And, you know, when you look at uh, Justice uh, Barrett, um, she wrote to me, at least when I read what she had wrote before she was appointed, to interview for that job that she ultimately got. I think you brought up a good point. It's hard to be absolutely crystal clear, pure, and honest about your position when you want a job so bad. And who wouldn't want to be a Supreme Court justice? If somebody came to me and said, hey, Jack, I got this really plum job for you. It's going to pay a lot of money, and you only have to work 20 hours a week, right? Okay, now let's talk about your position on a few things. It's easy, and, and I... I hesitate to use this phrase because I don't want to disparage the justices, but it's easy to sort of tell your audience what it wants to hear. It is, and I guess part of the leaked decision or a large part of it talked about democracy and that this issue should go back to our elected state officials. But when you think about democracy, it's kind of ironic that Everybody knew that these justices were going to overturn Roe versus Wade, and hypocrisy means nothing in the political world in Washington or really, or, you know, even in the states. But to suggest that it's not a political process up there uh, or to be shocked that the judges may say one thing and do another, well, that's just what politicians do. And we seem to be. Uh, acceptable of that in our society. And I wish that we could change that by holding politicians to their word and when hypocrisy occurs, making them pay for that hypocrisy. Well, the Supreme Court unintentionally becomes an arm of politics. And here's what I mean. There's a writer from Vox uh, by the name of Ian Milheiser. He's pretty interesting. And he says, you know, we've only had three justices appointed by a president who lost the popular vote and confirmed by senators who represent less, less than half the country. <laughs> well, he's talking about he's talking about Trump and Justices Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh. So what the Senate and the Congress or the House of Representatives can't do legislatively, they've done by putting the right people in court. So like it or not, the Supreme Court has become somewhat of a political arm, whether the justices want to recognize that or not. Then you take um, one of the things that Alito wrote in his uh, draft opinion was that the it's time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Wow, that really sounds good. But do we really have elected representatives anymore? I mean, let's just take Ohio. 12 of the 15 of our elected representatives to Congress are in safe seats, meaning that I don't vote for those people anymore. 
they're going to be in Congress whether I vote yes or no or don't vote at all. So we don't really have this uh, pure idea of elected representatives in Ohio that are going to decide the issue of abortion. Well, worse yet, the Supreme Court had two gerrymandering cases last year. In the one where black voters were at risk of being disenfranchised, the Supreme Court said, oh, we're not going to take this case. Uh, it was either we're not going to take this case or we're not going to hold for the petitioner. In the other case, which would have favored a more conservative part of the country, they took the case and made a change. So this, <laughs> while the Supreme Court is saying this is up for the elected officials, they're not exactly helping us get to a place where the people are actually ex expressing their views as opposed to legislatures or legislators who have picked their voters. There is an excellent uh, opinion piece in the dispatch, and it uh, talked about how the primaries, and we've just been through our primaries, disenfranchise voters mm -hmm. and dilute the representation. And, and it gave some examples, but mostly this uh, primary election where J.D. Vance was um, was uh, elected you know, to run for the Republican side of the Senate district, and it was talking about 350,000 people voted for J.D. Vance. Nine million were eligible. So 350 people put him in the position of the Republican nomination or nominee for the Senate seat, which he'll probably get just because he's a Republican. So that means that, what, a very small percentage of the people of our state has elected this representative. And the rest of us have to deal with the outcome of that so we really had no voice in it. Let's switch the direction of the conversation just a little. There was an article about, um, which referred to Justice Barrett talking in Kentucky, and it was at some Mitch McConnell event or a Mitch McConnell building, something dedicated to his name. Anyway, just Mitch McConnell was associated with it, which always gives me pause. But she said, I want everyone to know, and this is almost a quote, this court is not comprised of a bunch of political hacks. Now, let's think about what she's trying to communicate. Is she saying that the justices are not communicating with legislature, legislators about their pending decisions? That's one interpretation. And I would without knowing anything more, I'd be willing to bet that those justices do not communicate with the members of Congress. That's easy. Or, but it, it could also be interpreted to mean that the legislators are not stacking the deck when it comes to the Supreme Court. Well, hold on for a second. I think the evidence shows, shows the legislators are stacking the deck, right? And if that's true, then really, I think the part that Justice Barrett doesn't want to recognize is that she and other conservatives, in essence, are being used. They're being brought to the court, not because they may be the greatest jurors, but because they favor a certain political position that senators and House of Representative matters members 
can't get through in legislation. You know, and that's so true. I read a uh, article that a lady uh, wrote as to why she voted for Trump. And the sole reason she voted for Trump was to get Roe versus Wade overturned. But she talked about her vote for Trump as holding her nose. And he's terrible in all other respects except this one. But she feels justified now in that vote and in, in that Trump got the right people in. So when our justices try to say it's not political, it just falls on deaf ears. I, I, I wish that they would um, talk in more realistic terms. I think they'd have more credibility. But it really goes back to, I think, Jack, this idea of precedent. If these justices would mm. adhere to precedent, then it wouldn't matter if they were appointed for these conservative views, because they would have to give weight to the 15 or 16 other justices that have already weighed in on this issue over the last 50 years. Well, this goes back to the subject I always like to talk about, the human condition, ego, all those things that lead these justices to think that they have a better idea. And let, let's return for a second to Justice Barrett, you know, this whole idea we're not political hacks. Here's the problem, and, and we, we dance around it. When you're picking a justice, and that justice has a certain track record, and then the justice upon questioning says, well, I can have an open mind. I don't buy it. There are so many subconscious factors that go into rendering a decision that I think those statements about I can have an open mind just aren't true. We want to believe that. We have to believe that almost, but it's a fiction. Just like if you ask me about certain things, or if my, if my buddies in the golf league were to talk about certain social issues, they're going to know almost with certainty how I'm going to decide just because of who I am and what I've said. So I can say all day long, I'm going to have an open mind. And by, the, and by the grace of God, I would strive for that. But everything in my inner core is going to lead me in a certain direction. And, and we overlook that when we're interviewing these justices. Well, and I don't think it would matter either. No, um, no. I think that the uh, people that pick these justices, for the most part, are smart people. And certainly the justices are smart people, too. Uh, but they have a bias that is being um, capitalized by, uh, by our um, two-party system. Um, and it's, it's sad that it's going to result in the... Um, change in what's been going on in our country for, for a very, very long time. But I have to tell you about this leak that occurred to me while you were talking, Jack. It's such a great thing to have happened in this sense. Usually, there's a dissenting opinion when the court comes out with some case, right? Mm -hmm. Indecision. Right. And that's the only time that the court is criticized is by another member of the court. And they usually do it in a fairly... Um, professional manner right but the articles tearing this leaked draft apart have been fantastic pointing out the inconsistencies the lack of common sense the uh, groundless <laughs> comments that were made in these different writers opinions that just reading that tells me that um, yeah the, the supreme court they're not all knowing 
and they're certainly not the brightest, uh, you know, as far as um, uh, this one particular issue goes, at least. Well, I, I have not read the opinion, but the one phrase that gets cited a lot in the newspapers was that one statement from Justice Alito that Roe was decided wrongly from the very start. Well, that's a pretty bold statement, especially considering, if I'm not mistaken, that seven justices voted in favor of the constitutional protection. So he's now saying that seven of his prior brethren were wrong, not just wrong, but badly wrong. That, I hate to say it, but that speaks of ego. It does. And, you know, some of the commentary on it would tell you, and I might agree with the analysis to some extent that Roe is based upon this right of privacy that is not found in the Constitution. But then these articles would go on to say there's other foundation for a woman's right to choose in the Constitution. But when you think about the Constitution, what it doesn't say about a lot of the stuff that the court says it says is, uh, you know, the the exception is the rule. I, I have to laugh because um, one one um, writer pointed out that the right to counsel isn't in the Constitution. Neither is that. Neither is uh the Miranda rights, that's not right. In, that's not there. That was judge-made law. Uh, one other one pointed out that the right to uh, corporations to spend as much money as they want on an election is not in the Constitution, yet this court gave them that ultimate power. Uh, so it's kind of ridiculous to say that these particular words aren't in there. The court certainly can construe this document to mean whatever it means, which I keep going back to because it's somewhat discretionary for the people that currently sit on the court, which gives them an awful lot of power, that precedent has to be the overriding concern. Um, and I just uh, would pray that they, they would look at it as established law, like you pointed out, Jack. They all seem to indicate when they were in the uh, interviewing process. Well, regrettably, uh, well, here's, regrettably, I don't even think the Supreme Court is psychologically capable of accepting the fact that it has become part of the political process. Because I think all those folks on the bench just adhere to this noble idea that the the court is separate and apart, as it should be. But that's becoming a fiction. And if they don't accept the fact that they are now embroiled in the political process, as indirect as it may be, I think they'll have more problems. And um, confidence in the court will go lower. Is there any silver lining? I can think of a couple just um, off the top of my head. One is Going back to the article where the lady said the only reason she voted for Trump was the to get a Roe versus Way overturn. Now that that looks like it happened or is going to happen, there's no other reason for a lot of people to vote for Trump. Oh, that's oh, that's really interesting. That's the one good thing that people thought could come out of his presidency. Well, it came out of his presidency, and so. Um, uh, you know, that issue uh, is going to go back to the states, which 
brings up maybe another silver lining. I think that a lot of Republican politicians uh, use the Supreme Court's decision in Roe to dodge the issue of where they stand on abortion rights. Meaning when you get asked as a Republican, what do you do with abortion rights? You would say, well, the law of the land is Roe versus Wade. And as long as that's the law, then I'm going to follow the law. Well, when that goes away, a lot of these Republicans are going to have to tell us exactly where they are on it. And it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out if we can ever get a fair election again in the state of Ohio. And let's and let's go back to an important um, couple of events that really cemented how political the whole process is, because I think it's really important. And that is Justice Gorsuch's appointment. Because for him to be appointed, that meant Mitch McConnell had to refuse giving a hearing to Merrick Garland in March of 2016 under the, under the rubric that, well, the next president should choose the, pre, should choose the next Supreme Court justice, not the, not the man who was about to lose his office in about nine months. But of course, when Ginsburg died... In September, October of 2020, she was appointed and confirmed within a month, just a few days before the election. So Mitch McConnell had it both ways. So he was doing things that absolutely cemented the idea that the Supreme Court was a tool for him to use, like it or not. I don't know how he gets away from that. And he's been asked about it, and he won't come forth and say, yeah, that was my plan, and I'm proud to be the guy that, um, you know, uh, got Roe v. Wade overturned. And I found it interesting, too, that the recent interviews of Trump, it, it, he won't come out and say, yeah, that was my intent, and now I'm proud that it's coming to fruition. I think that it's so politically um, expedient for Mitch McConnell and President Trump to do certain things that when the results are this profound, you would hope that they would be thinking, oh my God, what did I do? But you just, you know, not because they're not thinking about what's best for the majority of the country. They're thinking about what's either best for them or best for the Republican Party, which anymore is just at odds what is best really for for the rest of the country what well, two comments first let's not overlook mitch mcconnell's comment when he denied Merritt garland a hearing he said something to the effect of one of my proudest moments was telling president obama that we weren't going to have a hearing for Merritt garland and the second thing is and if i sound like a broken record forgive me but every day i read the meditations of a gent named uh, richard Rohr. Franciscan priest who talks about how incredibly important it is not to think of ourselves, but to think of everyone. And of course, he puts that in religious terms, the body of Christ. We're all in this together. Let me assure you, those people in D.C. have no sense of the common good anymore, what works for everybody. They have in mind only one thing, what works for them. What's interesting, Jack, is that um I think you're very similar to me and, and maybe a, a little bit further uh, to the conservative side, but I am uh, uh, 
you know, pro-choice, but anti-abortion. You know, my personal belief is, is that uh, we should do everything we can to preserve uh, the life of, of a fetus, that we should support the woman uh, if she chooses to have a, a child, but ultimately it's her body and it's her decision. And you would think that after 50 years of all this controversy, if Mitch McConnell was actually interested in what's going on, they would have passed this law that they're trying to pass now in the light of this decision, which is kind of burning down the last 50 years of precedent. Can't argue with you. And my stance on abortion is the same as yours. I don't like it, but with the nation actually in favor of some type of abortion, I don't see how the anti-abortionists get to tell the other part of the country what to do. Anyway, this whole abortion. Only in America. Only in America. Hey, my friend, it's always good to talk to you about these issues. I wish we could be sitting around the office with a cup of coffee, but uh, in this day and age, we're doing it remotely. But uh, Jack, your insight is always uh, um, always of interest to me and uh, very, very persuasive. Well, I look up to you as the guy with the right insight. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue, and we hope you'll join us so that it's not just us, but all of us seeking justice. Thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about Just Us with Jack and Gonzo. Until next time, so long.